I know that there's often an uneasy or difficult relationship between um, the, the, the journalists and the academics, but even just thinking about what it is that you do as a, as a writer, as a journalist, as a, as a, a communications officer, as a, a sports lover, you know, those, those, blind, those blurring of roles, you know, are you, are you a cheerleader? Are you critical of the team? You know, even just thinking about that, I think helps make you a better journalist. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm your host, Adam Burnett, and with me as always is our producer, Sam Ferris. Hello, Sam. G'day, OB. And this week we are speaking with sports writer and current senior lecturer in journalism at the University of the Sunshine Coast, Peter English. Peter is very well versed in all things Australian sports media, and he also happens to have written many a story on a topic you and I are quite familiar with, Sam, and that's cricket. Yep, AB, I thought we knew a lot about cricket, but after listening to Peter speak, it's clear he's got at least one of us covered. This is a fascinating listen from when Pete started out by reporting on his own cricket side while he was still playing no less to writing about the big names here and abroad. The Mo Matthews story is great and I particularly liked this piece of advice from Pete. You've got to be prepared to ask the stupid questions. I've made a career out of that. Yeah, Pete takes us through his career as a sports writer from the Sunshine Coast to the UK and back again and he also offers us an insight into the academic world. We speak about self-editing, ethics, writing stories you really care about, and the lessons he wants his students to have learned before they enter the workforce. Before we go, our B, we'll ask our loyal listeners to please rate, review, and subscribe to The Writer's Hour, wherever you get your podcast from, and follow us on Twitter at The Writer's Hour. This is the 11th and final episode of Season 1 of The Writer's Hour, so we'd just like to say a big thank you this week to all of our listeners, and now it's over to Peter English. Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Good to talk. You're our first fellow Sunshine Coast resident, senior lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast, in fact. But Pete, I wanted to start way back when uh, your journalism career began and and how you got into this gig in the first place. Can you start from the beginning? Well, one of the, the, the cool or very weird things about my life is that I live three streets from where I had my first birthday. So I've managed to have what I think is quite an interesting career based around sport without moving too much. So the Sunshine Coast is my life. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's not really a hotspot for, for a whole lot apart from leisurely, casual, you know, tourism and beach and all this sort of thing. But I started at the Sunshine Coast Daily, which when you grow up on the Sunshine Coast, it's like, it's the dream, right? Okay, you know, a job at home. I have students at the uni who are desperate not to move. And our first bit of advice is that you've got to be prepared to move. And they say, well, where was your first job? And so well, it's actually <laughs> But, you know, we, t- we also talk a lot about ethics. And, you know, I, I'm very strong on ethics. But one of the reasons that I got picked to work at Sunshine Coast Daily was that they needed somebody to report on the local cricket team. Now, it just so happened that I was playing in the team and I had to write stories about myself. Now, hugely unethical. I mean, who, who does that apart from, you know, uh, people doing columns? Uh, fortunately, I never had to call for myself to be picked or dropped, and <laughs> I just faded off and was never never spoken of again. Um, but that the, the three years that I did there, working on sport and general news, you know, set up what happened next. And the best part about my my working life as a sports journalist was that I went to England hoping to watch cricket. It was two thousand and one; the Ashes were on, and do a little bit of journalism work. And and due to to an amazing fluke, it turned into to more journalism work and only just a little bit of cricket work, at least in terms of, sorry, cricket watching, at least in terms of the tests. 
got to watch a whole lot of county games. But I was able to pick up some work for, for The Guardian and then cricket magazines, Wisdom Cricket Monthly and other publications based on uh, an old family friend, knew someone who knew someone who worked at The Guardian. And I was able to work that contact. I arrived on the first day, again, thinking, you know, what have I done? I'm, I'm in one of these big um, media organisations. I don't know how to use the system. And you just kind of learn on the job. It's something that we teach the students a lot. You're always learning. You're always learning. You don't know how this skill will be useful. I remember sending an email back to someone at the Daily saying, hey, can you tell me how to use this, this computer program? Because I need to know how to, how to do it for my first shift. And anyway, we, you bumble through. You, you rely on people, you know, just like in journalism. You rely on your contacts. You rely on the people that you're sitting next to. And, and uh, you know, suddenly you're getting a few shifts. And then that turns into, hey, we're going to send you to a, a county cricket game. Now, being being an Australian uh, in the in the late '90s and early 2000s, the idea of going to a county game was not was not super exciting, right? Because you know the Sheffield Shield was was the king and county cricket. Well, everything wrong about English cricket. But I've never ever been more nervous in a cricket game than my first couple of stories that I had to send back to the Guardian. Because what was interesting about the Guardian is that they were they were a writer's paper. You know, if you do the five Ws in the H intro. Uh, you don't get another go. So I've come from the Sunshine Coast Daily where it's, you know, like Noose's Matt Thornhill scored a century to beat Maruchidor at Reed Park on Saturday. And I've got to think in a way that I've never thought about writing before. And the only training that I've had is from chatting to a few people in the newsroom and, and reading this paper and thinking, how do I make a county game this interesting? You know, factually interesting. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it took a little while. I, I, I remember taking in one of my... Uh, early pieces to a guy in the newsroom that I quickly respected who was a sub-editor and I said what did you think of my story <laughs> and oh it was brutal it was worse than being you know in any match with any fast bowler but by the eighth paragraph he said and this sentence wasn't too bad <laughs> you know he just picked apart every sentence and again it's it's great advice for young writers is that you've got to be prepared for the criticism but you've got to ask for it too now, this is different criticism to what happens in social media where you get it, whether you, know, whether you write a great piece or a bad piece, you get criticism, okay? It's, it's a horrible thing. But this is where you pick writers that you respect, you know, whether they're editors or sub-editors or, or whatever else, and you ask for their feedback. And then you've got to be prepared for the feedback, okay? Honest feedback. And I left deflated but also encouraged. Now, you know, it's, it's up to people who remember anything that I wrote to decide, you know, where, how, how my, my career as a sports writer, you know, went in the full-time days, okay? Um, at the moment, you know, I, I write an annual piece for wisdom. Please don't judge me just on that piece. I write academic articles based on sports journalism. Again, you know, that's only, that's only part of my work. But I think back to that some brutal feedback that I got from a guy who I respected and liked and, and um, you know, still email occasionally thinking, wow, okay, I got a lift here. And I think that that's something that new journalists can really benefit from, but you've got to be brave. You've got to be brave to ask for the feedback and you've got to be brave to take whatever it is that they say. And after that, my next piece, wow, I think my next piece was a washout. <laughs> and I was so relieved. I was so relieved. They didn't want any words. And, <laughs> you know, so after that, I, st I started to build a little bit of confidence, at least that they, they could run my stories and they would look like my stories. And, and that, it, that turned into a, a job at, at uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, which was amazing. I was thinking back to the people who worked at Wisdom Cricket Monthly and Wisdom 
wisdom.com back then. Um, it was an amazing little experience because we talked about two things. We talked about cricket and we talked about writing. So which is different to how I had been in, in my, my newsroom back in Australia where we talked about sport. We didn't talk a lot about how, you know, how to put words together or how to start a piece. And I still, you know, can think about some of the writers there. You know, one of them went on to, is the current editor of the Almanac for Wisdom. Another's the chief uh, cricket writer for The Telegraph. Another's an award-winning podcaster who's also written books on music. You know, her name's Emma John. Uh, another one was Tanya Aldred, who writes amazing environmental stories and environmental sports stories, all from this little hub of about eight people. You know, one of the guys that I'd come in and, and kind of replaced, he's the editor of the, of the sports editor of The Guardian. So learning off these people, these were the, these were the people in their early 20s. You, you've got to realise that you can learn so much from the people who are sharing your experiences as young writers, but also from the bosses. I mean, my boss back then, he, he, he died a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, um, and he'd been a deputy editor of one of the major papers. And one of the key things he taught me was that there is more to the world than cricket. You know, until, until then, all I thought about was cricket. And then this guy who had had so many jobs and you just sit, he, he would take you out to lunch and you would just listen to him telling all of these stories, some of who you knew the people about, some who, who, who you didn't. And it's just like, wow, you're right. There is a world out here. And because we're journalists, we don't have to be just cricket journalists. And I, I say that just with, with lots of respect and you know, <laughs> admiration. We can, we can do other things. Now, in, in my life, uh, it took a long time for me to write anything other than cricket. And I've broadened out so much more now in that I focus on sports journalism instead of just cricket. You know? But there is a, there's a whole world and a whole hinterland there. Um, Another thing I think from those early days is that you've got to be prepared. You know, if we're thinking about how to be writers and how to get information, you've got to be prepared to ask stupid questions and you've got to be prepared to, to uh, make mistakes. Now, my stupid question, I was working you know, on an editing shift at The Guardian and I just needed one more line so it would fit in the newspaper, okay? So not something that a lot of people now have to worry about in online, but I just needed another word so that the paragraph would spill onto the final line and fill the space. And there was a player, it was a football story, a soccer story, and there was a player who I just wanted to find out his position. And, and Google wasn't a, Google was there, but it wasn't the same thing. Anyway, I, so I asked the guy next to me, I said, um, so this, this guy, Peter Shilton, what position did he play? And uh, he was England's most capped footballer and he was a goalkeeper. So you couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even say, oh, he was a defensive mid or, a, you know, a winger. He was a goalkeeper and it was so embarrassing. But luckily, a week later, Don Bradman died and someone on the desk said, is Don Bradman English or Australian? So it wasn't the <laughs> most stupid question, but it certainly, it certainly taught me about preparation and also, you know, being able to, to make a mistake, you know. So I'm always the, I'm, I'm the guy at The Guardian who asked who, you know, Peter Shilton was, but uh, it could have been more. What a legacy. Uh, but Pete, from some of the things you said there, I guess that small wisdom uh, crew that you talked about, some of the lessons you learned there, what are those that stick with you and I guess that you now uh, share with your students? Well, we think about what we do as writing, but so much of a good story is how it's edited. And particularly nowadays, the editing is done by you, the writer. So, it, it, you know, I was listening to, to one of your recent ones about Peter Lawler, who he, he writes and sends, um, and, and you've got to learn your own approach. But 
for me, the first draft can always be fixed. You know, my first draft can always be fixed. I don't care if I'm writing absolute junk. As long as there is something on the page, it can be fixed. And that happens through, through the editing. Okay. So working on a magazine where uh, back then, you know, it was only, it was only a magazine. Um, it was a monthly magazine. So you had time to turn a piece from something that was good into hopefully something that was much better. Although I still remember some of the emails that I used to get from Gideon Hay where, why did you change this word in the fourth paragraph? You know, the, the kind of questions that journalists ask editors. Um, so editing of your own work to make it better, to improve the description, to pull out an unnecessary quote. Now, we don't always have that when we have to write a story. Sorry, we don't have that when we have to write a story in 20 minutes. Uh, and so much of the work that, that modern day journalists do is, is quickly turned around. But there are some pieces that you can put everything into and you need to focus on the editing to make them better. Is that really the word that you want to use? Um, that, that, that was a crucial thing that I learnt um, working in the magazine. Another thing is that, and again, this is, this is much harder in a modern environment for a variety of reasons, including how, how people are busy with their work and, and how hard it is to get access to athletes. But uh, my boss, he would tell me to go and speak to people. You know, even if, for, if it was only for, <laughs> this is a luxury, even if it was only for like a half hour interview, go to his house. It's like, what do you mean go to his house? Well, go to his house. So you ring up, can I come and visit you? Sure, come to my house. So we'd sit in the lounge room of, a, of an England cricketer who goes on to be the boss of the MCC. And, you know, that was the day to go and do the interview. Uh, I once had to interview a South African uh, wicketkeeper, Mark Boucher. I, I got 15 minutes at the end of the day, but we spent the whole day watching the cricket. I took my now wife down there. I thought I'd impress her by taking her to a day at one of England's most beautiful cricket grounds. <laughs> <laughs> we had a nice picnic and uh, we haven't been to a whole lot of cricket since, although she did see Mike Hussey get 100 at the MCG. And uh, we got 15 minutes. And you, you, make, you make the story beautiful from 15 minutes. But that one of the things that I've always struggled with as a, as a journalist and, and a writer is how the subject responds to the story the next day when they read it. And maybe they don't even care, okay? In many cases, they don't read it. Um, you know, writing that Mark War, I'm sure Mark War never cared about anything that I wrote. But I had this description of Mark Boucher, the way he stood with his, with his face. He had a distinct way of waiting for the ball. And, and I described it in a way that I thought at the time was really cool. And I said, he, he, he stands like, he's, he, like there's sewage wafting over the ground, something like that. And people who, who, who knew Mark Boucher said, hey, yeah, that, you got it. That's the way he is. And then I showed my wife. <laughs> she goes, never, ever write anything like that about me. Okay. So how do people see these descriptions? Um, and that's always been something that I've thought about after things have been published. You know, I, I'm very, very precious with what people tell me and how to report it. Uh, and the way that, that that comes back can often be misinterpreted because, you know, we see that throughout the world. What is a fact these days? What is truth these days? What did you mean when you said this? Um, so anyway, uh, it was it was still, you know, we got access. It was easy to get access back then. I was at Lords one day at a county game and I needed to talk to the coach. Um, again, a South African, Clive Rice. He said, oh, come and chat to me in the dressing room. So, okay, but we're at Lords. He's like, no, it's fine. Just say that you're here to speak to me. So for half an hour, I sat on the Lords balcony. I don't know what we talked about. I could barely take notes. But 
I'm, I'm sitting there with the coach. The players are just, just around, you know. Um, it was like the test, only, you know, more interesting because I could ask him whatever I wanted. You know? And that was standard. Who, who knows if that still happens at county games at the moment, but access is certainly being so controlled that mm. you get a press conference or, or very little or nothing, depending on how it is. So you get so much more when you are able to spend time with people. What do they look like? What are they wearing? You know, what are their mannerisms? And then you can decide whether whether you need to mention sewerage in a paragraph. That's up to you. <laughs> but these things can really help lift a story that is about a county game. And if you're at the Guardian writing, you know, 400 words back then, <laughs> 400 words used to be the whole day. Can you imagine? You need to be able to get in some bits that make people want to read that, that publication mm. instead mm. of the 11 others that were covering the game back then. Yeah, four hundred word story in a day. That sounds like a uh, a luxury <laughs> the, the, these days. I think you've got to do six of them. That's right. That's right. I I do remember my record was eleven stories, including an eight hundred word retirement piece. So you know, when when the students say you don't understand how busy it is, well, I have a little idea. You know, uh, and and also talking about some of the, the nicer days in journalism, you know, there are lots of hard days where you just churn out copy based on what's coming in. You try to add something unique to it. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, I've spent my time rewriting stories, you know. <laughs> well, I don't think you would have much time on the 11 stories in a day effort. That's, uh, that's some feat. But uh, you mentioned there that even the voucher example and you talked about access and control uh, increasing nowadays. You also said at the top that you were strong on ethics um the two seemed to collide a little bit hypothetically say that you were doing a one-hour chat with i don't know patty cummins and uh it all went well and then the following day he gave you a phone call and said um mate if it's not too much trouble do you mind if i see the copy before you put it on the site what's your response okay so my response throughout was i would be happy to send quotes and you know i heard peter all talk about that recently you know, happy to send quotes. Um, uh, okay, so it's not, not not a Pat Cummins story, but I did a story with Nathan Bracken towards the end of his career where he gave me some amazing, you know, for, in brackets for Nathan Bracken, in brackets, quote, quotes around his career. And I talked to him for, for, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes. And to me, his career was over. At no point did he say, I want to play for Australia again. You know, it was for an online story. And published the story, you know, I can't remember the angle, but it, you know, reflected our 20 minutes. And then he's, he's, he's sending me text messages, perfectly, perfectly legitimately for him to do that, saying, I'm so disappointed in the story. You say that I don't want to play for Australia again. That couldn't be further from the truth. Okay, so that's fine. All right, so because we're online, I put in an updated sentence, just saying, just saying this because, you know, he, he'd been, something had happened like he'd missed a contract or, or he'd been injured or something something had happened so that this was an issue. Um, and and it was updated and I had, had no problems doing that. But I think of another example where Greg Matthews, um, he had played his first test and he said he played for free. So at the end of the match, that Greg Chappell is handing out the checks. So early 80s, you get your match payments at the end of the day. And he gets to, uh, to Greg Matthews and said, I hear you want to play for free and rips up his check. Right. So Greg Matthews is telling me this story for, for a 4,000 word piece into dressing room culture. And, uh, and he said, I, well, he said, I was furious. Anyway, 
anyway, we talked for a long time and, and the stories that he tells me are so central to this 4,000 word piece. And he says, well, you got to send me the, you got to send me uh, the piece when you're done. And I say, I'll send you the quotes. So the piece is done. You know, it's like a day till deadline, whatever, 4,000 words, probably talk to 25 people for this piece. And, and Matthew's essential to, to key parts of it. And when you're writing a long feature, make sure you break it up, right? From word one to word 4,000, it's just too much for any reader to, to do. So, you know, I broke it up into three or four chunks. And one chunk is basically based around the stories that Greg Matthews tells me. So I send him, send him the quotes. He's like, no, mate, you need to send me the whole story. It's like, I'm just sending you, you know, you're only part of the story. I'm just sending you the quotes. Anyway, and then we have a, a, a discussion slash argument slash whatever it is about about doing this, and he gets really angry at me because I said that he was furious <laughs> when Greg Chappell ripped up his check, when he said that he said he was infuriated, and <laughs> it's one of these kind of like, am I really having this this discussion over what the difference between furious and infuriated? Anyway, so. With a, with a heavy, heavy, you know, fast-beating heart, I send him the full story because without Greg Matthews, there's, <laughs> there's not no story, but it's, it's a crap story. Anyway, he rings back and goes, hey, great story. And then he hangs up. So uh, I, did, I certainly relaxed my ethics on that to send him the whole story, and I will always argue that was out of necessity. And you know what? I did change in fur- fury, furious to infuriated. And that was the only thing that I needed to do. The single word, the crucial word. Uh, Pete, would your policy change if, say, let's use the Pat Cummins example again. He tells you he's suffering from mental health issues. He wants to see the copy just to make sure he's happy with it. How do you react to that? Do you take the same approach? Well, these things are negotiated during the interview, I say. Okay? Anything can be off the record. Anything can be on the record. But if you're telling me something off the record, you've got to say that first. We don't have a half-hour discussion and you say, hey, that was all off the record. That doesn't work. If there was something that he really didn't want put in, then we'd have a conversation about it and it would depend what it, what it was. But as a professional athlete who is so controlled, you know, Pat Cummins, anyone, anyone in any sport, you know what's going to happen when you're going for a one-on-one interview. So I, I am even less open to changing things now Mm. given the situation than I was 15 years ago because everything is so controlled. If you give me something interesting, then it's going to be in the story and there's going to have to be a really good reason why. And no matter how many PR people call after that, you know, I'm going to stand my ground and that we were on the record or not. Uh, Again, it was interesting hearing Peter Lawler um, talk recently uh, with you about letting small things slide so that when there is a big thing, you know, and each journalist makes their own mind up on that because you've got to, you know, how how crucial is this relationship to me? One of the best things about working in England was that when you had to go off and interview somebody, it was pretty rare that you had to talk to them again. And that's different to the day-to-day, you know, week-to-week journalism where you're on one sport and you have to see Justin Langer the week after you said that he, his, his time should be up, you know. So definitely understand these things, but if, if we're doing an in-depth interview and, and these things come up, you know, tape recorders on, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be pushing hard for that to get in, you know, no matter the complaint. Pete, let's take a sidestep. This teaching profession that you've entered into, when did it happen, and and how did it happen? So uh, maybe four years before I stopped as a cricket writer, 
um, I was interested in in doing something else. Again, thinking back to my my uh, my old boss in London, you know, there is more to the world than just cricket. And around this time, I was having a few conversations with people who I worked with at Crick Info, where you know, you, you write cricket. <laughs> That's what you do at Crick Info, right? And and I always thought I loved cricket, and you know, I my friends family, everyone who knows me, you know, like you're a cricket nut. And I, around this time, I was having a, a conversation with one of my good friends at Crick Info who said, you're not really a cricket person, are you? It's like, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> I only spend like 60 hours a week thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but compared to most of the people who work for Crick Info, you know what? I, I was more a journalist with an interest in cricket than, than cricket obsessed. So uh, also, you know, um, children were, were about to come along. So I thought I need to do something locally. And the uni is 10 minutes down the hill. So I started as a, as a sessional staff member teaching some news writing courses. And I thought, I like this. You know, this is, this is a good job. You get to help people. You get to pass on some skills. And it gave me a break from cricket. And then I did some more study. And uh, I did a, when I, I finished uh, as a cricket writer and a full time cricket writer in 2010 11 for the Ashes series, and then did a PhD and have been working at the uni ever since. During the period in which you were doing both, did one inform the other? And I mean, did you benefit from what you were picking up, particularly as a teacher, into your writing and your journalism? Or was it only the other way around? Uh, no, it, it went both ways. You know, when, you, when you're researching about, things you know I was looking at sports journalism and how online journalism was changing sports journalism when you're looking at those things it makes you think more uh, I know that there's often an uneasy or difficult relationship between um, the, the, the journalists and the academics but even just thinking about what it is that you do as a, as a writer as a journalist as a, as a, a communications officer as a, a sports lover you know, those, those, bl- those blurring of roles, you know, are you, are you a cheerleader? Are you critical of the team? You know, even just thinking about that, I think, helps make you a better journalist. Uh, and then, of course, being able to pass on all of the things. Hey, last week I wrote this story. I did this, this, this and this. You know, I think that's hugely helpful uh, to many students who want to be journalists. Um, for a couple of years, I, I did a, a, a case study lecture on a story where I wrote about mixed martial arts. Now, again, this was for Crick Info, but it was a former England captain was doing a mixed martial arts um, fight, uh, which was, you know, the most horrific thing for me to think of as a little passive, you know, um, living in the hills on the Sunshine Coast person. Uh, Adam Holyoke, former England captain, wrestling on the ground, punching people in the kidneys, um, you know, just a thousand words, please, and a little news story. I read the story, Pete. Terrific story. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So anyway, it turned into it, like outside the fight. It was just the worst day because it was on the Gold Coast three hours away and the car breaks down. And I don't know what, you know, I still have to file my story. It wasn't like today where, you know, internet is everywhere, Wi-Fi is everywhere. So it ended up being filed at 7 a.m. in McDonald's, having, having been written through the night while staying in a, in a horrible little motel. Um, anyway, Adam Holyoke, he survived. I think he, it was called a winning draw, which sounds like one of those results that you get in, in uh, England club cricket. You know, everyone, everyone loses, but somebody still wins. And, uh, 
And as I was doing this piece, I was kind of channeling one of my old sort of role models, um, uh, David Hopps, who used to write for The Guardian and then Trick Info, and trying to get a little bit of fun into a piece that potentially, you know, could be life or death. Now, the Hollyoaks, they know about life and death in, in, in sport and, and uh, things that, that happen. So, you know, trying to get in a little bit of fun. Anyway, he, uh, he described my, my piece as, as casually brilliant and, you know, I was very happy with the casual, you know, the brilliant. Well, that felt nice too. But, you know, when one of your mentors is, you know, talks about something that you've done under such stress in that way where it is a little bit of fun, that's good. Now, whether students are interested in this sort of stuff, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. You know, will this be on the test? No, it won't be on the test. Will it help you in the rest of your life as a journalist? Perhaps. You know, you, your job as a journalist is to be professional in that if you're told to file something by 10 p.m., you file it by 10 p.m or 7 a.m. or whatever it is. So, you know, there are little lessons that, that people may not recognise, just like I didn't recognise them when I was at uni or in my early years of journalism, where you think, you know what, that was actually very useful. And I'm applying that now in a slightly different way, in different circumstances. But, yes, be professional, file by deadline. Um, you know, I, I say that I know one person who didn't file by deadline and got to keep their job. You know, these are important lessons. There was uh, something I enjoyed about the Holyoke piece that is almost a luxury these days where you were on the scene, you were watching him go to a fight, a mixed martial arts fight, which automatically gives you a scene in a story, allows you to, I guess, be a little bit more colourful, a little bit more featurey, as you said, maybe have a little bit more fun with it. Are those sorts of things what we should push for as journalists? I mean, well, too often it seems to me caught in the rush of churning out a story every day or what's happening in the news, but these opportunities to go and actually witness something with a subject, they seem like few and far between. Would you like to see more of those opportunities for, for writers? I, I, I definitely would. I mean, I understand the circumstances, but, you know, the, the whole point of what we're doing is try to get something original. Mm. Yeah. When 30 people are asking, you know, like, let's say Pat Cummins questions at a press conference, there's nothing original there. And then what happens is that the whole pack goes to the next press conference and the next one. And uh, I've been interviewing some journalists over the last couple of years and one of them says that it turns into the best essay writing competition, except it doesn't turn into the best essay writing competition. It turns into the best sort of fast news writing competition. And, and that's not a competition that I'm interested in reading or, or you know, seeing people win. Uh, Any time that you can get out to go and speak to people is, is such a benefit. I mean, in, the, in this example of the mixed martial arts, um, I was sitting in the crowd, which was quite unusual back then because, you know, like I'm, I'm a journalist. I sit in the, the media box, right? I need to be close enough that this is pre-COVID days. I want to feel the sweat and the blood and all this sort of stuff landing on my table, right? That's, that's what you think about boxing writers or mixed martial arts writers. But, uh, you know, I was sitting way back in the crowd so far back that I had to take pictures as well and the pictures were just absolute junk. <laughs> but, again, you know, the same with writing. You've got to make something work. So I was able to walk into the dressing room and get a photo that was serviceable and then, you know, use my, my least worst image from 50 metres back. But the people that you sit next to give you great colour as well. I had nothing. I didn't even know what they were doing in a mixed martial arts game. So a game. <laughs> it's not really a game. But, uh, you know, they were able to tell me. And, and the best thing was that, you know, the, the description of a, a manoeuvre as a reverse naked choke, you know? <laughs> So I was able to put that into, I, I, I manufactured a quote from, a, from a, a, an old Surrey member 
um, discussing Holyoke having somebody in a reverse naked choke, which I thought was amusing. You need a little bit of background knowledge to get that, but if you're working for Quick Info, maybe that works. <laughs> so where are you were saying you got your opportunity at the Sunshine Coast daily and slowly but surely things happen from there. Uh, we've increasingly seen newspapers shutting down regionally. Where are kids getting their opportunities nowadays? Yeah, it, yeah, it's a good question, Adam. I mean, lots of industries are struggling, particularly around COVID. Our, our graduates are still getting jobs. We've had two people get jobs in the last two weeks. I've got a check on a student who had an interview yesterday. Now, where are they getting jobs? Well, um, so we're, we're at a time where um, News Corp Australia has just closed the, the printing of the papers you know, within the past few weeks. So where are they getting their jobs? They have been getting a lot of jobs at, at regional publications, and we expect that will continue. We are prepared for our students to be working online. You know, the, the amount that we teach related to print is so tiny. You know, we don't have any print-specific subjects. They stopped years ago. Uh, we have lots of online focus, lots of mixed media focus. Our students leave being able to produce videos, podcasts. They've got their own websites. They've got their own blogs. They're doing audio editing, video editing, shooting their own stories so that they can go into any type of newsroom, no matter what the media is, and be ready. So they can work in TV, they can work in radio, they can work on online. So uh, one, of the, one of the benefits for graduates, and you know, they will continue to be attractive, is because they are multi-skilled, but also mm -hmm. because they are not the mid and senior journalists who are super expensive. So mm -hmm. you know, we're still very confident that we will have people getting jobs and, and developing, uh, and hopefully there continue to be more options of it as a 30-year as a career. Now, is someone going to spend 30 years in one in one newsroom? Highly unlikely. But so much of the creative, um, you know, arts industries, uh, um, flexible careers where you move around. So, you know, I still have faith, confidence. I'm happy to tell parents. Parents are the ones that you really need to persuade that you know there are jobs out there for students. And if you're interested in being a sports writer, one of the key things that you need to do, I think, is train. If you want to be an athlete, if you want to be a runner. You do your training. So if you want to be a sports writer or a sports journalist on TV, you read sport, you write sport, you listen to it, you watch it. That is your training, both in your knowledge but also in learning how to write your stories, no matter what the medium, and also the place where you find role models, people that you can follow and, and copy in parts and talk to and build contacts and maybe they help you with different things. So... You've got to do your training, and that involves watching the sports that you like and also writing about them because if you are doing that over three years and building your skills throughout the university program, then when you get there, you are so far ahead of most other graduates because you are ready to work and you know what you're doing. What about the idea, Pete, of these students having this diverse skill set, which, as you say, is excellent and it does make them employable? Um, you spoke earlier, though, about the art of writing and your maybe a bit of a romantic or old-fashioned or whatever you want to call it in that regard. But do you feel as though, you know, if these students are walking into jobs where it's cut a video, throw together this podcast and, oh, yeah, write that 300-word story, do you fear that the time it takes to craft a good story may no longer be available and, and therefore we, we lose the art? Well, one of the things that we need to do is prioritise our jobs. You know, one of the, the great quotes that I heard from, a, from an agency journalist who was writing after midnight, you know, at one of the tennis tournaments is that there's, 
there's a time for writing and there's a time for typing. A lot of what we are doing day-to-day journalism is typing and getting things done as soon as possible and as well as possible within, you know, accuracy and timeliness and those sorts of things. But when you have a time to write, make it the best story, prioritise your story. It may be that, you know, over a day you have one hour to write your best story and then you have 20 or 30 minutes to write all of the others. Well, for that one hour, you focus on it so that you make it as good as possible. The more that we write and practise, a lot of times my role was writing shield reports. And you can end up doing, you know, four or five paragraphs in five minutes because you get into the training of it. So get that job out of the way quickly and then focus on the story that you want to do. Now, how much time is there for that in a day-to-day newsroom? You know, maybe it's you get one, you know, one half day a week or maybe it's a half day a fortnight, but make that the story that you aim for in terms of being as beautiful writing as you can. Uh, and I think that's a useful tip, but I know it's hard. I know how busy people are. I know how, how newsrooms have fewer people. I know how they have uh, less time for mentoring. Um, so these things are difficult, but the self-motivation is a key thing. Uh, and that will, that will, you'll have moments of, of inspiration and you'll have moments where you think, I can't, I can't do this in a beautiful way. It's just going to be another story that I, that I finish and get on with the next one. But, uh, you still need work that you're proud of and it might be a beautiful video story or it might be as simple as a as an awesome social media post you know these you have to celebrate your wins when you're working so hard and moving from story to story to story and then maybe one day once you prove that you have got uh, enough flair and inspiration through these different posts then you, you know you might get a feature writing job once a week and then that's where you put everything into writing your beautiful stories Pete, what are the practical elements of the course at the University of the Sunshine Coast? Do these students get out in the field? Yeah, our students do get out in the field. Yeah, they are going to to uh, interview people around court and council and fashion and sport. Um, we have a few uh, sporting teams that work out of the uni. You know, we've got a, a elite netball team, Sunshine Coast Lightning, where stories are done through them. We have cycling teams. We have other uh, Olympic swimmers and all of these things, these types of athletes who are good targets for interviews and stories. So yes, they certainly get out. Uh, we hear some nice podcasts, we see some nice video stories, um, we get multimedia packages around them. So yeah, they're definitely practical. And we also have uh, newsroom elements where they do an internship and they spend 13 days in, the, in an organisation in their final semester, which basically counts as a long job interview. So. Uh, as well as picking up the newsroom skills that can sometimes be, you know, well, can sometimes be a little more difficult around how organisations work. Um, they've got all of this time to learn and impress, and that's a great way for them to pick up jobs. If you've got a student walking out the door on his very last day, his or her very last day, what do you hope are the key lessons they've picked up from yourself before they enter the real world of journalism? Well, I mean, there are key lessons from, from all of the staff here. Um, so I think that they need to be willing, getting ready to adapt and to learn on the job. We've got a student who works for Australian Story, and she said that when she was at uni, her job hadn't been invented yet. The job that she does now hadn't been invented. So we teach them skills about telling stories in a factual way that they can adapt to whatever is the technology, whatever that is in the future, um, you know, because we've taught them in, to be flexible, we've taught them a range of techniques that they can apply in the future. So if they can go out, um, you know, on their last day of uni and be ready and accomplished 
and be able to use the telephone so that they can call people because that's the best way to get people to talk to them and not be worried that people are going to say no sometimes or a lot of the time or whatever. You know, if they can go out and be self-sufficient and walk into a newsroom and I'm, I don't expect them in their first week to stand out in a newsroom, but when they're there doing work experience or doing their trials, I want to keep them in with the chance of getting a job rather than being ruled out, which is what I felt like when I when I did my time, at, um, you know, as a work experience kid, I felt that that I was being ruled out because of what I was doing at one of the places, <laughs> you know. So it was the second place where I was like, I know what I'm doing now. I'm not ready to write eight stories a day to publishable standard, but I can write two so that the next time I go up for an idea, they're like, yep, go and do this, go and do this. So I want them to be ready for a newsroom, but not masters of a newsroom because, you know, that's not our role. Uh, and of course, all of the newsrooms, you know, they have their different guidelines on what, what counts as good and quality and all of that sort of stuff. And I want them to be flexible. I also want them to be able to show some of the established people in the newsroom how to do things because they have skills that other journalists don't because of the things that they're learning through some of the, the courses that we do and the approaches that we take. On the flip side, what can't you teach journalism students at university? And I, I guess they use these experiences in the field to pick up some of these, but what aspects of the job do you think have to be picked up in the job? We can't teach them how to deal with the volume of work. Okay? We, we try to. We have news days where they have to write multiple stories in different formats. But when that happens, not just on Monday, but throughout the rest of the week and the rest of the month, that's something that you can only adjust to in the newsroom. And I think that that's, that's one of the hardest things, the volume of work. I mean, you know, we all, we all work hard in different ways, um, you know, no matter our profession, but the idea that you start the week needing to do 15 stories and they all have to be good enough to be able to go on the website and they need to have stories and maybe multimedia elements, that is a difficult thing to train when we have students for, you know, 13 weeks a year. Uh, and one of the things that we hear back mostly, most often from, from our graduates is that you, you told us about the workload, but we didn't believe you. you know, so that is the hardest thing. Uh, other difficulties is, you know, how to fit into individual newsrooms. Um, I'm, I don't feel that they have problems with the content that they have to get, but how do they deal with a boss that doesn't talk to them or only talks to them when there's a problem? Or how do they, how do they deal with it when they're they're in um, you know regional Queensland as the only journalist within 200 kilometres and their boss is on the phone you know four or five hundred kilometres away. Those are difficult things. Uh, and again, this is where being you know persistent and being adaptable uh, are, are important traits for young journalists. Is it a rewarding profession, Peter, being a lecturer at a university? And do you recommend it to other journalists who might be looking to get their foot in the door? Uh, I think it's super rewarding. There are two things that I love about my job. and the, the first thing is when we get the call saying that they've got a job. You know, nothing beats that. The other thing that I love is where I work, we have a lot of people who come to uni who, who wouldn't normally go to Brisbane to go to uni. Brisbane's 100 kilometres away. It's a big move. We have a lot of kids, we have a lot of students from country areas who come to our university who, who, may, who wouldn't normally do that. They might be the first in their family. And some of those students struggle. And so the, the second thing that I love is you, you get a student who might be at the start of the semester, you know, only capable of getting 40 out of 100 over the whole course. And then, you know, we work with them, we spend extra time, you know, they get to 52 out of 100, they get to go on. And then at the end, in their last semester, they just start to soar. That is a cool feeling as a teacher, seeing 
you know, and and thinking that you, know, you, you might have had some role in watching them grow and then, you know, next time you see them, they're a producer at sunrise or something, or, you know, they're, they're doing the weather on wind, you know, awesome things. Love that a lot. Uh, if you are a journalist thinking about getting into to universities, teaching is only one part of it. You need to be interested in researching something about the industry because what is happening increasingly is that you need to have a higher level degree, you know, whether that be an honours or masters, to be a chance of getting sessional or casual work. Um, in, in When I started, I only had a bachelor degree. Uh, I was a casual because I'd, I'd written about sport and worked as a journalist for you know, 10 years. That was enough to get me a job. Whereas now the bar is set higher, particularly with what's happening in the university sector where um, a lot of casuals are, uh, are in danger because of the restrictions around international students and the impact that's having on budgets. Um, they're looking for people who have higher degrees. So if you're a journalist thinking about getting into universities, think about what, what you can do in a study sense that is research to help add to your teaching because the teaching is awesome. It's hard work, but it's super rewarding. And the research is where you're trying to find out something new that can help the industry or describe the industry or is significant in some way. And that's an aspect that a lot of practitioners don't think about because they've never had to think about it. And one of the things about research is that, you know, a 5,000 word feature, it involves research, but at university, the research element is different to the steps that you take to research and write and produce a 500 word, uh, sorry, 5,000 word piece. Speaking of research, you've written a book. I have written a book and it's, it's not about a cricketer. So <laughs> it's about Australian sports journalism and uh, the threats to the industry. I've spoken to, uh, with a couple of um, helpers, 120 sports journalists over the last two years finding out what are key threats in the industry as well as a range of other things. And um, one of the main threats is the general economic conditions in the industry. Uh, A second threat is the commercial influences, the things that you need to do to be able to get content that is original and unique. So this involves getting an interview but mentioning, you know, the person's sponsor um, or having travel paid so that you get to cover the Giro d'Italia or, or whatever event it is. I mean, it might even be a 2020 at the moment, the way, you know, the way things are domestically. Uh, but also the force of journalism being turned from something that was more detached and independent to tainted by these influences that are so crucial to journalists getting stories that have some form of originality to it. Um, I'm thinking of, at the moment of, I, I really love reading interviews by Donald McRae from The Guardian. You know, every week he has a high-profile figure um, and tells an amazing story. Yet at the end of every week, he he couldn't do his job if there wasn't a tagline saying, you know, um, this person supports this charity or this interview was arranged by this, this and this. I was reading a story just just recently about uh, one of my favourite footballers, Joe Cole, and the only reason he was in the paper is because they were promoting the him as a, a commentator so you know you do the interview because you mention the commentator now uh, as young journalists maybe maybe this is the way now this is the way you get an interview but it used to be you know you know can I have an interview or now it seems to be what do I have to do to get the interview what do I have to mention to get the interview uh, and then the third one was about sports organizations and how much control they have over you know access 
can I interview someone? No, there's a press conference next week. Uh, over things like accreditation, sports organisations until COVID have got so big and so much power that they don't need sports journalists anymore. So this means that the industry needs to start reframing, which is a difficult thing from a position of general weakness, you know, thinking of staff, staffing levels and finance. But uh, sports journalists uh, have tried to fit into these new commercial and market conditions, but it hasn't worked. So now there's a, there's a time for them to, to try something different, which is going to be really difficult given the workloads. But, you know, they've tried to cosy up sports organisations. They've tried to cosy up to commercial elements and you know, it's not working. So, yeah, there's about 45,000 other words that will cover this and uh, it's a real page turner. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to having a read. It, sounds, uh, it does sound very interesting. What about, Pete, if uh, you find yourself in a situation where a student is telling you of the good news that he's taken a job at a, a sporting team as a, a journalist with that sporting team or with a sporting organisation, uh, is do you have a reticence or is it simply you have to uh, roll with the times? I'm very happy when a student gets a job where they want to work. You know, if that's a sports organisation, if it's a newsroom, that's fine. Um, we've had students who have been super excited to get jobs in the travel industry, not as travel writers, you know, as as travel agents. You know, one of my best students from a few years ago, uh, she was so excited when she got a job in a travel agent. One of my best students from two years ago is a flight attendant for Emirates. I would love for both of them to be writing news in any form, but they've gone to uni. They've got their degree, they've picked up skills and they're doing jobs that they love. That doesn't hurt me. You know, I'm, I'm very happy for them. Uh, and I, I am also not just teaching people about straight journalism. You know, I'm teaching them about, you know, if they, at the moment I've got um, one of the sporting organisations at the uni is looking for people to help write press releases about, about their, uh, their sport. It's great experience. You know, it looks fine in the resume. Um, I did a bit of travel PR. Um, I've written some coaching guides for Cricket Australia in my life. You know, it's fine to be across different disciplines. But as a journalist, when it's time to decide what facts to go in, you know, into your piece, you know, then you have a different type of decision. So no, if students leave and get a job in something that they, they, want, they love doing, I'm very happy for them. Did you, does the book explore, I guess, there's an increasingly complicated dynamic now with media conglomerates, uh, say News Corp's relationship with Fox, for example, and then Fox having broadcasts of the cricket and then having to be wary about what they might put in their news stories because of that relationship. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about? It is, yeah. That's one of the things that comes under you know, commercial elements where things are both ex- external and internal. Uh, journalists in the study said that they were compromised in what they could publish around cricket and Fox Sports. Uh, and News Corp Australia publications. There was um, late last year, there were, or early this year in the 2020, declining crowds. Now, um, Cricket Australia argues there weren't. There were more people watching it. Um, but it was a story that News Corp journalists didn't feel that they could cover because it made things look bad. And then you see how much money Foxtel is losing. You know, they put in you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe Channel 7, to, to get this deal. And... Foxtel has lost a whole lot of money. News Corp has lost a whole lot of money. So there is definite conflict and, you know, media is commercial, has been, you know, has been forever. But traditionally, the publications were at least independent or detached from these things, whereas now 
these things affect the Fox Sports website. They affect what happens in the Australian or Daily Telegraph or the Korean Mail. They affect what happens on Foxtel through the commentators. Where man, I, I'm listening to Channel Seven this year when the cricket comes on to see if, if things are different. But um, it's just pools of positivity, no matter what's happening, except for maybe the opposition where they they will dig into the opposition. But everyone is so polite to or praiseworthy to the players, to the people in the commentary box, and you know. This is with more journalists in the commentary box too. So all of these elements are at play. Of course, you know, when commentators sign up to, to be commentators for a particular series, there are things that the board or the rights holders say they can and can't say. There were controversies at the last World Cup where um, Michael Holding was reported as, as saying that, you know, he was being, um, comments were being sanitised to the point of censorship because he had said how disastrous the umpiring had been. So, you know, these are things that are not only affecting sports journalism, but sports media. And like in many other areas, you know, the economic factors and the big business, they usually win. Do you think there's room for independent sports media outlets to pop up in Australia or is it too saturated of the behemoths uh, got too much control? Well, there are small pockets of independence. Um, I, I, uh, in, in my dream, I, I see the different publications of, of News Corp having different positions on things. But, um, that's becoming less likely, particularly as you know they're setting up their their pool of AAP style reporting. Um, I think what will be a more interesting case, and and it gets to the sport eventually, is that with News Corp shutting down a lot of newspapers, so not the publications but the newspapers in Queensland already, we've seen smaller. Uh, sorry, we've seen in cities smaller newspapers starting up. So. <laughs> Hopefully that provides some drive. Um, can people just start up a sports organisation? Well, yeah, there are, lots of, there are lots of things happening around that already, but uh, it is a saturated market and it is it is dominated by, you know, News Corp 9 and, and 7 West. Uh, it makes it very difficult for small players, but any kind of different take in media is certainly welcome at the moment. When can we read this book, Pete? Well, I... I've sent it off. I wait for them to reply to see that they are happy with it. And if they are, it'll be um, late this year or early next year. So, yeah, we wait to see. Excellent. Congratulations on completing a book. (laughs) Well, yes. Yeah, step one, complete the book. Exactly right. And by deadline too. So. Um, and you know, maybe I'll get onto the cricket biography next. You know, <laughs> who could I do? You keep mentioning Pat Cummins. What's he like? <laughs> Been to uni. Very, very interesting. Apparently, he completes a crossword very quickly. Can he? I don't know if that's fact or fiction, but uh, that's a story that keeps going around. The cryptic, no less. Yeah. Well, I was thinking just this morning about Ben Helfenhaus. He was an online Scrabble player. Was he really? Oh, there you go. And that's not what you think when you think of. Ben Hilfenhaus. Or any fast bowlers. I mean, Scrabble is a hard game. (laughs) I don't think anyone is saying that he was a brainiac, but, you know, Scrabble is an interesting game for, you know, an outswing bowler who grew up as a tradie. And finished on 99 test wickets, I reckon. See, I didn't, I didn't know that. You are, you are truly a cricket person to know that. Maybe I am a cricket nut. (laughs) Anyways. Pete, I can't let you go without answering our hypothetical. You have a sit-down interview with one person, living or dead. Who would you like to talk to? Well, I would love to do a Wright Thompson-style piece on Peter Sagan. So Wright Thompson is a sports writer from ESPN. He does the most amazing long-form pieces. 
Now, your question is about who I like to interview. I don't really want to interview Peter Sagan, but I want to follow him for three months. I want to talk to his family. I want to talk to the other riders. Um, that, that I want to talk to the people at cycling events because he seems to be quite a polarising figure, the most exciting cyclist that, that we've had in decades. Yet I saw a story during the week about he had a crash in a, in a major race and one of the competitors saw his sunglasses on the road and rode over them on purpose. Wow. I want to do a story on a guy like this who has changed, changed sport, you know, but is, is, he, is he disliked by one person? Is he disliked by the whole peloton? I want to go to Slo- I want to go to Slovakia and I want to talk to his family and his friends. I want to see where he mountain biked. I want to see what his life was like. I don't particularly want to talk to him. And that's the beauty of these right Thompson pieces. He did one about Michael Jordan recently, and he had interviewed him previously, where he will write thousands and thousands of words. It took me forty five minutes to read, and the detail and the building of the story is beautiful. So, uh, ESPN, I am available for that. I'm not right Thompson. I'm not pretending to be. Uh, if that falls through, I would just love to spend a weekend interviewing Greg Matthews without copy approval because I think that would be the best story, the second best story ever. Could be a wild weekend. I would learn a lot of new words. (laughs) Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problems.